All right, if I can ask everyone to uh, have a seat. We're ready to reconvene here. Our 10 minutes are up. <clears throat> Could you ask the people on the phone to identify themselves? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, the phone callers. Could you just briefly uh, identify yourselves? We just want to get a feel for who's who and how many people are on the line. This is Chris Menzel. Chris Menzel. Hello. Okay. Welcome, Chris. We we'll hope to hear from you Steve. soon. Anyone else? Brian Hoff. Brian Hoff. Okay. Anybody else online? Hello, this is Florian from Münster in Germany. Who was that? I didn't quite catch your name. Could you uh, try that again? This is Florian. Hmm. Did you catch that? It, your voice is coming through very muffled on this end, but... Uh, welcome. Welcome anyway, yes. <laughs> This is Cecil Lynch. Lynch? Peter Lynch? Yes, Cecil Lynch. Cecil Lynch. Cecil Lynch, welcome. Yes. We seem to have... We we supposedly have about eight people on the line. I'm not sure. Anyone else there? Can you hear me? I didn't catch that. I'm sorry. We're having hard, hard to hear problems here on the telephone line. Could you try that one more time? This is Fabian Neuhaus. Oh, Fabian Neuhaus. Welcome, Fabian, yes. from Buffalo. Chris, uh, uh, Chris, I'm uh, Mensel. I'm muting everyone, so could you unmute yourself and test your voice? Wait, he's not speaking next. But uh, I just wanted to find out okay. which line right. he's on. Chris Mensel, could you uh, do a star three and then say something, please? Okay, here I am. Oh, yes. Oh. Is that working okay? Uh, let me see. I think so, yeah. I think we're Okay, yes, you. yes. You're from the 979 number. Okay. Great. Yep, that's me. Okay, uh, did it, anyone else that we missed on the telephone uh, would like to identify themselves? Okay, hearing none, I then we'll move forward. Uh, we're now in the session where we're just going to hear some perspectives from different uh, sectors of the community um, on kind of this issue, the whole issue of uh, frameworks, ontologies, etc. And our first speaker is, uh, is Deborah McGinnis from Stanford. Thanks, Steve. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the semantic web perspective. Um, so you can go perfect to the first slide. So the semantic web, as we heard this morning for anybody who was in the session, uh, is taking off um, in a big way. We could look at it as viewed through academic and industrial perspectives as representative from the W3C semantic web activity. And those links, if you look, um, if you, you don't have to click, Peter, but if you click on them on the web, they'll take you to the semantic web activity or to uh, Markov's New York Times article where he introduced Web 3.0. Um, and I took quotes from each of those two pointers uh, just to give you kind of a little bit of spectrum of the perspective on the semantic web. So from the activity perspective, uh, the semantic web provides a common framework that allows data to be shared and reused across application, enterprise, and community boundaries. And in the New York Times article, 
Um, he mentioned Web 3.0's goal is to add a layer of meaning on top of the existing web that would make it less of a catalog and more of a guide, providing the foundation for systems that can reason in a human fashion. So they're consistent um, in the perspective, but one's a little bit more uh, from the general web perspective and one's a little bit more from um, the knowledge representation perspective. So I thought in this uh, perspective I would give one slide on what the semantic web might give to this community and then another slide on what the semantic web community might get from this community. So first, that picture, we saw it also today in the forum, that's the latest uh, layer uh, depiction of the semantic web, starting at the bottom with what I usually refer to as the plumbing, how you access things and get to things, going into the middle level, the yellow level up there, into the representation, um, AL and RDF and RDFS for representing meaning, uh, Sparkle and other query languages for getting, for retrieving things, the emerging RIF rule interchange format language that's expected to be a recommendation out of W3C, I'm guessing next year, possibly this year, if they were really lucky. Um, moving up to logic and proof, so a proof of why something is true, all enabling you to trust something. So one of the things that people in this forum might be interested in is there's tools and products from the semantic web community at all of these layers. So there's language editors and validators like Protege and Swoop and many others. Um, there's ontology evolution environments that allow you to load in ontologies and then diagnose them, merge them, make suggestions on how to modify them. There's reasoners that once you have uh, the information represented in something like AL or in KIF or some other formal language will let you do some kind of deductions based on the information you put in. There's emerging explanation, proof, and trust languages and environments that allow you to annotate why you believe something, if you believe something, why you believe it, how you, it came to be, and who you are. Uh, and then once you've got it represented that way, to present it in a summarized form or in an interoperable form. There's a lot of markup languages. Every time I turn around, there's another domain-specific markup language. Um, I just gave two examples up there of GeoCIML and chemical markup language, but every community that I drop into has their own markup language. There's search and browsing tools. There's question and answering systems. So there's a lot of things that can jumpstart you from the semantic web world. Then the semantic web community might be very interested in some products that come out of this meeting. In particular, the dimension fragments, um, as, a knowledge as a trained knowledge representation person, of course what I want to do is represent that stuff and then start to deduce things based on it, analyze it, categorize it. Um, and one of the things that the semantic web world does is analyze out the wazoo. Once we've got something that somebody thinks is important. If you looked at this year's International Semantic Web Conference, you saw people out there crawling for data and looking to see when something was more populated or less populated. Um, I'm really looking forward to this population spreadsheet. Um, so one, we've got a starting point, which actually provides some interesting data by itself, but it's impoverished. Um, that spreadsheet might encourage other people to do markup with the same dimensions. Um, and once I've got that kind of thing, that markup, then I can start to do more powerful um, applications. So, for example, I own at Stanford um, a large ontology repository. 
and I, I inherited it when I went there. Um, but one of the things that it doesn't have is markup like intended use for the ontology. And so people come to me, who's kind of the owner of it, saying, what have you got in there? And I say, well, just do some search. But if I could search over intended use, it could be a much more powerful tool. Um, similarly, Swoogle, the semantic web uh, Google version that looks for RDF and OWL descriptions, you could imagine enhancing that, looking for RDF or OWL descriptions over particular intended use ontologies, and it might be a good way of filtering. So I think products from this work group can actually empower some of the semantic web tools. Um, and I really, sorry, the last point, go back for a second, the ontologies as design artifacts. I think that's a very powerful message that uh, certainly I as a semantic web community person can benefit from, but I think everybody here can benefit from it because if we actually get departments, journals, uh, more trained people to use this, we all benefit in a big way. Okay, next slide. So my uh, quick conclusion is that we as a group are much stronger together than separately. So um, we might actually modify. We previously had the name of this being ontology, taxonomy, folksonomy, understanding the distinctions. We might say similarity, leverage points, and distinctions because we might want to emphasize the similarities as well as the distinctions. All of our communities focus at some level on interoperability, reuse, some kind of machine operational meaning capture, smart search, where smart's in quotes because it could be very smart using a whole lot of reasoning or lightweight, simple um, expansion, and some kind of question answering. Speaking for the semantic web community, we're a very young field, an evolving field. We're always looking for input. If you need things in the languages that aren't there, we're looking for that. We're looking for tool requirements. And more than anything else, we're looking for use cases as well as testimonials. Um, I think the current web, semantic web success stories um, will just grow uh, if we start to leverage a, a broader world of ontologies. So if we start to leverage the socially created folksonomies, for example, we'll just have more data to be using. Um, and although I said the semantic web community is young, we're actually in our seventh year of the in in international conference. So it actually has been around a while, so you can see some success stories. You're seeing spin out from ISWC, the International Semantic Web Conference, to ESWC, the European Semantic Web Conference, the Asian Semantic Web Conference. A lot of little workshops are spinning out. A lot of domain-specific areas are popping up, too. So geoinformatics is in its second year. It uses a lot of semantic web technology. Um, Earth and health and life sciences is probably the most mature. Oil and gas has really grabbed onto the semantic web world as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to think that this is kind of perfect timing. So my last point is um, timing is perfect for us in this room as a broader community. You're seeing informatics departments pop up in a lot of universities. Bioinformatics are in many universities now, but you're starting to see more like geoinformatics starting to pop up. You're starting to see conferences. You're starting to see journals. And so I think it's the right time to really get out there. Thank you, Deborah. Um, I, why don't we take questions? Because I think, uh, let me, what, before you ask the question, I just want uh, Chris Menzel to be aware he's up next, and I think You've been working something out with Peter Yim as far as getting your slides viewable by us. So uh, while you work that out, why don't we entertain some questions? 
good. I just sent everything to Peter a few minutes ago. Hi, this is Evan Wallace from NIST. Um, I had two questions. What did you mean by leverage points? So anything that I can reuse across any of the different areas. So, for example, um, when I just do knowledge-enhanced search, I don't need complicated, sophisticated ontologies. Um, like, I'll go over to Tom and say, hey, give me your tags. Um, you know, and also when I... can't afford them. I can't afford them. <laughs> okay. Uh, and when I actually am trying to go out and build my sophisticated ontologies, I need starting points for the controlled vocabulary. So, um, and also to not leverage the social collaborative workspaces that we're seeing go wild. Um, so that has been kind of historically the way my narrow academic world has approached um, life. We said, you know, we spent the last 20 years training ourselves in a particular way. We might know how to uh, conceptualize this better than the rest of the world, but then we have to become experts in every domain, which is crazy. I mean, we're all changing now, I think. And my second question was, uh, you talked about uh, domain-specific markup languages. Is that what some people call microformats? Uh, it seems to me that that... To a certain extent, that's what motivated some of us at NIST to get involved in things like the semantic web and semantic technologies is the proliferation of all of these special schemas. Um, you know, you, as a standards person, you, you can't really have much impact on that. Uh, so what was the alternative for supporting integration? So that's why we went to semantic technologies. Well, I think that's the right one's perfect motivation for semantic technologies because literally every time I turn around another microfilmet or markup language uh, is popping up and whenever I go into an area to try to help them with semantic interoperability I say what are the starting points and there's hundreds so the semantic technologies are a great it's the best silver bullet that I know of for doing the mapping and I do include microformats in this notion of um, markup languages, although they don't call themselves. Actually, where's, oh, there he is. Thomas, yeah, yeah. speak to that. Okay, uh, why don't I yield to Thomas, because I'm not positive whether you call microformats markup languages. This is Thomas. Um, it's uh, essentially leveraging uh, HTML, XHTML, and providing a, a namespace and elements, or uh, within the elements, being able to put attributes in there that uh, that information can be scraped out of. Um, so it's it's formalizing the structure of information so that it can be used and reused, and essentially using a web page as your API uh, rather than a data set. Okay, so I think that fits most people's definitions, although they might not typically use markup language at the end of microformat. Okay, well, we are, uh, unless anyone else has any other questions, we are set up for the next perspective talk, which is by Chris Menzel, Texas A&M, uh, representing kind of the formalist's perspective. And uh, actually, uh, Chris, well, actually, maybe I can ask someone in the back of the room if they could turn off the jet engine uh, fan, I think, because we're going to probably have a little more difficulty hearing Chris speak through the speaker in the middle of the room here. Um, 
Well, let's try it. Um, so, Chris, are you still online? I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Uh, you're a little quiet. I might tweak the knob there a little bit, but um, we have your slides downloaded and uh, on the screen as well as on the VNC for other remote viewers. So why don't you go ahead? Okay. All right. Um, do you have a link to the slides? On the yes, the slides are all lined up. It, you just need to call out the numbers. will be doing the VNC, and Leo is going to be running the slides in the room here. Try and speak as loudly as you can. All right, hang on just a sec. Uh, is that any better? Hello? Much better, much better. It is better. Okay, good. Uh, I can't hear that well, but uh, hopefully that won't be a problem. So um, uh, we want to go to, I guess, just a uh, slide two. Uh, before I start, though, I just wanted to say uh, one thing uh, quickly, and that's just I wanted to uh, uh, offer a, a bit of a, uh, an apology to uh, Tom Gruber and to the uh, to the mailing list. Uh, after some discussion with my good friend Mike Ushold at Boeing, he uh, convinced me that uh, a reply I gave to Tom a couple of days ago was a bit uh, unnecessarily strident, and I've come to agree with him about that. So, uh, anyway, my apologies. Don't worry about it. That. Thanks. I'll take you out for a bit. All right. Sure. All right. So uh, let's see. I'm not really seeing the second slide here. Is it up? Yes, it is. Here? Yeah, we see it. Okay. Yes, well, you, you might have to press uh, refresh the the VNC refresh. Ah, ah right. Oh. Okay, great. So uh, first thing, I uh, just want to uh, agree with a point I see that a couple of people, including Tom, have made. Uh, uh, about uh, ontological engineering, that uh, really it needs to become uh, a mature uh, uh, engineering discipline uh, with rigorous foundations just like uh, uh, mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. Uh, though the foundations for ontological engineering are going to at least include uh, mathematical logic, which is something that isn't really part of the current engineering curriculum, but really ought to be for people who uh, are going to be interested in specializing, and that should be as Fundamental, really, is the calculus is to uh, other en uh, other engineering disciplines. So, uh, common logic and this talk, uh, forgetting about the first page there, is going to be a bit about common logic, but really, uh, it's going to be a very quick proposal about one way of understanding the notion of ontology, notion of ontology. So, um, because we want common logic to play a, a role here, we'll um, I'll say a bit about it. So it was designed to serve, as we say, uh, say there are rigorous, uh, as a rigorous standard for writing mathematical logic uh, ontologies and exchanging them on the web. So, Peter, if you go to the next slide. Right. Okay. So what uh, what common logic is, very briefly, uh, it's fresh. I'm not refreshing. Well, there it is. Uh, it's an ISO uh, standard uh, as of about December, I think, and uh, uh, documents and the like can be found at that web uh, site, that URL. 
Um, it is, as uh, noted, a logic framework for exchanging and transmitting information. Uh, it's a specification of a large class uh, of formal languages and their semantics, which would include, in particular, uh, a wide variety of uh, uh, first-order languages. They're all first-order syntactically, but they differ quite a lot. Um, uh, they can differ quite a lot uh, in terms of the details of their semantics and also as far as uh, their, the way they can look. In particular, there are two dialects. One is a sort of Kiffish dialect called Cliff, and an, another is an XML style called XTL. And these are both defined um, in, the, uh, in the standard uh, document. But there's in particular no privileged uh, dialect, and the idea is to uh, be able to understand representation languages at a level, at a more abstract level, above any particular uh, implementation or dialect. So next slide, Peter. Uh, so, as I say, CL isn't itself. Common logic is not itself a language. Uh, there is no language which is common logic. There's a large variety of common logic dialects that, again, include uh, standard first-order languages, but uh, also somewhat stronger languages as well. Uh, it's not an ontology. It doesn't make any presuppositions about what there is beyond what we might call a standard logical ontology of individuals, properties, and relations. And moreover, the semantics is such that those properties and relations can be inter interpreted uh, in standard ways, uh, traditional ways as just sets, uh, sets of n-tuples, or as properties and relations in, in intention, uh, which is much more in the spirit, actually, of, uh, of uh, web-oriented languages like Allen and RDF. And it's, of course, not a panacea. Um, you know, it's, it's a tool to, to get a good, uh, to get an engineering job done, uh, and it's useful for some purposes and not for uh, others. In particular, being a full first-order language, it's going to be uh, undecidable, uh, hence obviously intractable, and so it's not going to serve as a as the D language for doing automated reasoning. Uh, but it is very good for, for some representational purposes, particularly when you're worried or interested in representing content and for representing content in, in a variety of ontologies. Okay, Peter, next slide. Only a few more here. Right. So uh, the design goals were to have a, a rigorous uh, syntax and a classical semantics. So it, it does not incorporate uh, certain uh, uh, languages that uh, um, were designed for uh, other goals that have, say, uh, uh, well-founded semantics or some other non-classical semantics. Um, and to provide very clear definitions of validity, subsumption, or entailment, and uh, equivalence between uh, concepts. Oh, I probably should. <laughs> uh, between classes, properties, and the like. To be maximally expressive, uh, so it can express the content in particular of uh, any RDF, RDFS, or OWL ontology. Uh, very minimal syntactic restrictions, unless desired. So it's very, very free with the, the, the kind of syntactic restrictions there are. Be in particular web and network sensitive, so it's got uh, uh, numerals, uh, you know, data, uh, for for denoting uh, integers, data, integer data types, quotation for denoting strings, and so on, and provisions for importing and transmitting content content on the web using XML. Here, number six. So now a couple of uh, more general comments then, uh, to which. Uh, 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 common logic is is, is, re is relevant, uh, though I won't uh, push that side 
of the equation much here because I don't think it's uh, uh, paramount. So uh, there is a distinction uh, between uh, an ontology as an engineering artifact and, and its content, and this is exactly one of the points that Tom was making that uh, Mike uh, uh, clarified. Uh, and the formal semantics for uh, uh, a, uh, a, an ontology in a representation language only provides rigorous meanings for the, the logical vocabulary. So in traditional first-order logic, the, the Boolean connectives and the quantifiers. Uh, and intuitive content can only be expressed via axioms, and that's as far as you get. Uh, beyond axioms, the intended or intuitive meanings and other informal and quasi-philosophical notions just can't be captured formally. Right? You get axioms, and that's as far as it gets. And then after that, we have to sort of talk to each other and so on and so forth, but we enter the realm of the, the informal, the non-formal. So uh, I think we need a very clear division between ontologies and engineering artifacts and these less formal notions. So uh, I'm just going to use the notion of an engineering ontology. Uh, Peter, next slide. And so uh, here's the proposal which may have already been given. I don't know. I apologize for uh, it's the last week of school here, and I'm just completely uh, snowed under with uh, other obligations. Uh, the proposal is one I've actually floated before, and I, I backed away from it, but I'm, I'm backing, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm walking toward it again. So uh, the proposal is that an engineering ontology is a set of statements in a formal language that has a well-defined syntax and a, uh, and a well-defined declarative semantics, period. So that's any set of statements whatsoever. So you might, as I think John Sower recommended, uh, adding the provision that those statements shouldn't be just logical truths, just trivial truths that are logic that are uh, truths that are logical true, uh, logically true relative to the language's semantics. So otherwise, the statements don't say anything interesting. They say things like, uh, "If it's raining, then it's raining." Um, and then uh, further, by translating into a, a, a common logic or some other uh, medium like that, uh, common logic dialect, ontologies can be shown to be equivalent or not. So rather than talking about saying, uh, rather than saying, well, I've got the same ontology in in OWL and in, uh, you know, uh, uh, first-order logic, um, this uh, proposal would be to say, well, we have two different engineering ontologies which are logically equivalent. Uh, and then uh, relations between classes uh, and such can be made explicit within or across ontologies, subsumption, overlap, equivalence, and so on. And the final slide, Peter. So uh, the virtues there, some of the, some of the virtues there are others I've thought of since, but <laughs> was uh, in, a, in a hurry, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's formally precise. I mean, this is the kind of definition you need in an engineering uh, uh, discipline, right? Uh, you know, you need to know what derivative of a function is if you're uh, uh, doing uh, uh, mechanical engineering or you're doing statics. You have to understand uh, uh, the various uh, kinematic and dynamic equations of, of Newtonian physics. Uh, it, you need a very, very precise definition of what one of these engineering artifacts is. So the, the previous page gives you one. It's completely precise. Uh, and it provides, I want to say and stress, one clear and useful notion of ontology. So there are going to be lots of other notions, informal notions, very useful pedagogical notions like the, uh, um, like uh, Tom's original uh, 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 specification of conceptualization, um, you know, John Soa's 
suggestions, uh, all sorts of uh, interesting and useful uh, informal notions of ontology. We need one, at least, uh, uh, purely uh, uh, mathematical and formal notion. So that's the proposal. Uh, it encompasses anything that can be considered a formal ontology, certainly anything in OWL or RDF or RDFS. Um, and it doesn't privilege one representational framework uh, over another, right? So long as that framework has uh, rigorous syntax and, and semantics. And that's it. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we do have a, at least one question here, so uh, hopefully you can hear us here. Let's see. Arturo, I think, you have a question. Um, hi, Chris. This is Arturo Santos from UNF. Um, I'm very hi, interested. Arturo. How are you? I'm very interested in this area, and I'm, I'm still learning. Uh, what, why do you call uh, this KIF style and XML style dialects? Is this is a, uh, a, a expressiveness thing? No, it's it's purely a it's a term of art, and it it uh, it, it uh, really is just the notion of a language, right? Uh, language for a, ver a variety of, of reasons. We, we decided the term language was a little uh, overloaded, and so we just simply wanted, you know, CL gives you a specification. It says, look, here's what, here's what a, a, uh, here's what a, a dialect, like uh, a, a, a version of first-order logic, say, has got to look like. Here's, what, here's the specification. So anything that meets these specifications fits. So anything that, that we just chose the word dialect as a, a term sort of specific to common logic that refers to any language in the kind of traditional sense that satisfies the, the specifications of CL. Um, good. Another thing is um, you mentioned things that CL are not, but you didn't really mention what CL is. So I guess that I could... Oh, I thought I had one slide, didn't I? Did uh, we miss it? Oh, you did. Well, I, I still have a question, though. Why isn't okay. it... Yeah, so why isn't it... My answer wasn't complete. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. So why yes. isn't it the Sermelo-Frankel set theory enough instead of, I mean, why do you really need CL? Well, um, look, um, uh, part of the idea is that uh, Sermelo-Frankel set theory uh, just talks about sets. So, um, uh, for one thing, there's no mechanisms built up for talking about, say, importing one ontology into another. So there's a lot of stuff missing from Sumerella-Frankel set theory. Plus, uh, sets aren't really the natural ontology for the web. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, OWL and RDF, right, uh, those, uh, those are classes, and they're certainly not extensional things. Uh, you know, you've got a class of U.S. citizens. Uh, it changes its members, uh, you know, every, every couple of minutes. Uh, and so uh, according to Sumerella-Frankel set theory, what you get is a different set. So there's no one thing, which is the, 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 the class of, uh, of U.S. citizens. You get a whole uh, kind of a temporal sequence of, of sets. So, so uh, that's another reason. It's just that the natural ontology uh, of, of OWL and RDF and other uh, uh, W3C languages is not that of the Zermelo-Frankel set theory. And, and certainly we use the Zermelo-Frankel set theory to build the model theory of CL. That's, that's all you need. That's, that's, that's model theory. That's okay. Not the yeah. Idea. So that was the, the, the previous to last question, which would be how do you capture the intended uh, interpretations given your logical specification of your domain? Well, you, you, you get as far as you you get as far as axioms get you. 
And then uh, after that, I mean, uh, I always like to use PSL. Uh, the pro- NIST uh, process specification language is a good example. I mean, it's got a great set of axioms. Uh, if you look at the uh, the various, the base, the core uh, axioms and the various modules. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, in, in first order logic, it's just the fact that you can't uh, specify uh, the intended uh, interpretation uh, of any interesting theory uh, up to isomorphism. So, um, you know, you, you do the best you can with your axioms, and, and, and that's the best, that's that's the most you can do as far as exchanging information, and after that you add some, add some, uh, 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 you know, in the header you might add some, uh, some English or whatever language of your choice to to explain sort of what the intended models are supposed to look look uh, look like beyond what the axioms can provide. But uh, this is just an inherent problem with any kind of formalization. Certainly, it's not something that's common to CL or that's uh, intrinsic only to CL. Thank you. Yeah, um, sure. Tom Gruber, you have a comment or question? Hi, Chris. Very gracious of you to uh, to open the com- comments like that. This is Tom Gruber. I have a. I think I understand your proposal. I want to confirm that I understand it. That maybe other people have the same ambiguity about it, and then and then offer an implication of what I, if I understand it correctly. So the understanding okay. I have is anything that can be put in, or is actually anything that is in the form, that is encoded in the form of a formal logic. Um, is is one of these engineering ontologies? Is that that's the definition, uh, right? Any yeah, set of although statements. you know the language the language could be something like owl, right? Uh, which isn't really a logic per se; it's more like a, a kind of a, a weak uh, theory of classes. But yeah, as long as the language, the representation language, has a, a, a rigorous syntax and a and a, uh, and a clear, uh, uh, well-defined semantics, then yes, that's the proposal. Okay, so with that, so. But why don't, if it can be an owl, then couldn't it be in anything that sort of logically uh, can be translated into a well-defined language without loss of information? I mean, what if I did it in video, in tap dancing and videotape, but I had a, had a translation that turned it into owl? Um, then would I be able to, I mean, I, I don't mean, this is obviously a silly example, but there are, I don't want to use real examples for reasons, right? Um, but what if there was one that really did? There was a straightforward trans- a relational database, okay? A relational database can be translated into logical okay. formalism. Why won't you, sure. if it's in that other form, doesn't that include all things that can be translated into that form? Doesn't it include all things that can be translated in that form? Yeah. I mean, if you have, if you have your database in, now the database proper, I mean, residing on the machine and files and such, right? That's, that's not, that's not the, the ontology proper, right? But insofar as you could express the database in terms of, uh, you know, the classes that you've uh, introduced uh, uh, in, in your relations and, you know, by, by defining your tables and so on. And uh, uh, the records, though, you know, that gets down to a, 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 a level that may not be, um, that some people don't consider is really appropriate for an ontology, but that's uh, an issue that could be be uh, pursued separately, but yeah, I mean, insofar it was represented in in uh, a language that captures the uh, uh, content of that database, and it's well defined and has a, a good semantics like uh, of the sort that say Ray Ryder provided for databases. Then uh, I don't see why that's not an ontology. Yeah. Okay, I just think that that maybe I would refine it a bit, just work on it a bit, because it seems like if that's a necessary and sufficient condition, you've used a formal definition of ontology. It's based on its form, 
And, and since almost everything can be translated, including the database records themselves, can be turned ground statements and logic, I assume yeah, CLT exactly. handles ground statements. So basically everything that's stored on any computer anywhere can be a ontology. And I think that the point we've lost well, if it's, a if definition. It's I don't think that's right. I mean, I don't think video and such are, are, are easily expressible. I don't think a, a word processing document is, uh, um, uh, is as it as it sits, is a uh, is a uh, is an ontology, right? I mean, it has to be. I don't either, but I, I don't know how I tell. Rigorous. Sorry, but, sorry. but Chris, I know you know the difference. And I'm thinking is I'm trying to figure I'm, I'm pushing you basically, and you'll do it later. I mean, let's have a conversation. But I'm pushing you to refine this so that we can tell a okay. difference between an assertion that this pixel is in this object, that pixel is in this. Those are all ground facts. Yep. I can represent anything in binary form as propositional logic. So if you can add something to this that captures that notion of intent or gotcha. design context or interpretation context that makes it an ontology, does that make sense? Okay, I, I, I'm 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 hearing you, and and uh, right, this is this isn't the place for carrying on the discussion. But um, I think I can say I think I can address some of those concerns. But I, I certainly wouldn't want to claim that this is a, a finished product. And I certainly appreciate the um, you know the the uh, the the, uh, the the comment or the criticism. And uh, I would be most willing and most happy to work. With and uh, and dialogue with people about how to to refine this to get a, a, a useful notion of an engineering ontology. And if this doesn't do it well, then we'll just have to fix it. Excellent. Uh, this is Steve Ray. Okay, we, I know we have at least Michael Gruninger wanted to say something, and maybe Leo. I'm not sure. He's sort of looking like he wanted to say something. Okay. Hey, Chris. Uh, hey, Michael. So just kind of follow up. I, I think one of the things Chris probably intended with that, that particular definition is to emphasize the property of the, the language needs to have. Um, and he, he was calling it declarative semantics. And, and to, when I kind of you know, present that kind of an idea, to me it, it's this idea of, of a model theory where um, yeah. it's kind of like the, the, the minimal commitments that, the, uh, that you have to have in that language. So it has to be some notion of, of truth, some notion of interpretation. Yeah. Because this is how you determine whether or not two ontologies are actually consistent together, uh, whether one ontology uh, kind of follows from another. And it's that, that kind of minimal machinery that I think what Chris was after in, in kind of saying, providing that definition of engineering ontology. So it's kind of more a set of, of, of sentences in some form of language where you were defining form of language as having that semantics. So I think that was one particular... That's, exact, that's exactly right. Yeah, and th now then there's this whole other issue of, well, is any set of expressions in such a formal language an ontology? And I think that's, some, that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, that's a really good, yeah. good question. Yeah. Leo, Thanks did you have a Yeah, comment? so I just wanted uh, to emphasize uh, Mike's last point, which is, that I think it gets to um, if there's some artifact that's in another representation, can it be uh, can it be compared with an engineering ontology or even become an engineering ontology? And I think yes, but I think it has to go, undergo some process of formalization that would uh, you know uh, satisfy the, the ground requirements for comparison. So yeah. it might be uh, translate those bits actually into uh, propositional logic, and then yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Tom is right in, in one sense. I mean, you could take a word processing document and you could describe in propositional logic the the string of characters and spaces and such on the page, and uh, you know, I mean, look, you you can have also really bad engineering designs, uh, uh, useless engineering designs. I could describe an impossible building. I mean. Right? They're still designs, they're just not good designs. 
Uh, it's just that we want to have this, this idea of having a uh, representation in a language that has a clear and rigorous syntax and, and corresponding semantics uh, that are capable, as Michael uh, emphasized, uh, capable of expressing such notions as truth and entailment. Uh, that, that's what's key. Fair enough. Uh, okay, this is Steve Ray. Uh, thank you, Chris, uh, for that. Um, before we move on to the final and keynote presentation of this little gathering, I do want to ask, did uh, the little endorsement sheet we sent around, is it still in existence anywhere? Oh, wow, it made it all the way over there. Very good. If anyone else wants a chance to put their uh, name on there, um, please catch up. And Chris, you'll, and other virtual participants, uh, if you make your intentions known on that regard, you can be recorded for posterity as well, if you like. Um, okay, uh, with that, uh, we had asked some time ago if Tom would be willing to give a little keynote for sort of the, to cap off this, uh, this ontology summit, which he graciously agreed to. So we'll sort of use this opportunity where Tom can not only uh, give the keynote, but also that's not. Is that yours? Yeah, but it's not plugged in. That's it's Leo's. Uh, he's also going to give his the, sort of the um, Web 2.0 perspective all rolled into one that way. Okay. Okay. I'll try to. How's this? Good. I'm on. Okay. Well, okay. I'm just going to have to point. There's a lot of clicking to do. If you mind, I might just do that. Of course, he also worked. He has much more money. Yeah. Um, so thanks again for the opportunity. I, I feel I've been speaking a bit too much at this workshop, but I, I, I'm passionate about this stuff, and it matters to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm energetic about it, and I, hopefully I have something to share with you. Um, this, this talk is really about wrapping. Um, I've lived in both worlds, legitimately, I would say, the ontology world and the social web world, Web 2.0. I'm an entrepreneur. I've started a company that succeeded in this space. I started a company in the enterprise space that used knowledge management and that used these principles and worked. And then I also, of course, did all this uh, academic stuff when I was at Stanford. Now, what's interesting is that um, aside from losing some hair and stuff, I learned a few things from that, stepping in both cultures that I, that's a, it's lucky that we can share. Okay, so next thing. So first what I'm going to say about this is about what is, how, how do we combine the energy of the web and the, and the Internet in general, with, uh, and, which is the most powerful intellectual force going on in the world right now, with what we're doing for living here. And I just want to say that it all started a long time ago when the Internet was very young. Doug Engelbart said that computers and networks, network computers, should be used to create collective intelligence, collective IQ. And he was funded by the government, and he did very explicitly and deliberately. And I know Peter's, Peter and I both know him well. He's, he's a good guy, and he, this is the vision that we've been following. Now, he invented the mouse, yes, but he also invented groupware collaboration. He also ran the number two node in the Internet. He did a lot of stuff. Because he saw the connection right away that this Internet thing was going to be a great way for us to have collective knowledge. So next step, zip ahead a bit. This fellow, Tim Berners-Lee, whom we all know pretty well, too, had a pretty similar vision. In fact, it wasn't just about sharing physics papers. He actually does believe that it's the combination of people and computers that makes the web the killer infrastructure. 
And he keeps saying that. In fact, they now have an institute at, at MIT that he's running called something like uh, Collective Intelligence Institute or something like that. It's the Web Sciences, but it's, I guess, it's like Tom Malone's is called Web Intelligence, but they're all doing the same thing. Okay, next. So then this guy, Tim O'Reilly, who is not a scholar or pioneer of the sort of those two guys are, but he's got more web mojo than those other guys do, except for Tim, maybe. But, I mean, he's, been, he's a publisher of all the books and stuff that get about Web 2.0. He's a modern, um, you know, mover and shaker, if you will. And what does he have to say? He says the most important thing that's happened in Web 2.0 and you look at these names he's quoting as examples, is harnessing collective intelligence. So there's something in common going on with these three different kinds of people. And I also think I've dedicated my career to that same goal. So let's go to the next slide. So this diagram on the right is kind of a picture, I mean, of what the difference between Web 2.0 and 2.0 is. It comes from a blogger, which is a kind of appropriate place to get such a diagram, because they, they are uh, very much creating Web 2.0. You, know, you see a bunch of little people figures on the right and not so many on the left. You see a bigger cloud on the right and not so many on the left. And the most important thing is you see a big red arrow from the users to the cloud of content in the right diagram. And that means that user, user participation is the key defining feature of Web 2.0. Several other of them have to do with how that information is harvested, harnessed. Now, the facts on the left, you may have seen these before. Actually, the Pew Center has a great study on this. You cannot believe this is years ago. Already a third of adults contributed to the Internet, the public Internet, not email. And um, now it's even more. I mean, it's gotten ridiculous. So a, a large portion of humanity, well, of people who are fortunate enough to have computers and Internet connections have, uh, have connected. And that's over a billion people. Okay, so this is life today. This is the real world. So guess what? We can really be part of that. Okay, next slide. So what is this picture of? This is a picture of our friend Wikipedia. The, the, the world, most rapidly growing um, source of knowledge in history. And uh, what was that graph you saw just before that giant thing stepped on it? It was the graph of, of the popularity of the New York Times readership relative to Wikipedia readership. <laughs> um, Wikipedia is li kind of like the um, Harry Potter books, but for grown-ups, you know, like all of a sudden people are reading again. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they're really going on the web and using it as a source of information. And... Not only just a few, but I mean, look at the numbers. That's really phenomenal. It's a real enabling technology or enabling phenomenon. And that's also, that's, that's also old now. It's almost a year old. Now, what's, um, what's interesting about Wikipedia, I think that's the killer app for Web 2.0. There's a bunch. I mean, the blogosphere is a fantastic killer app. And I, I count only mostly the, the A-list blogs plus all the blogs by tech blogs. Those are really fantastic. Maybe some gadget review blogs. But then there's another subset, which is the FACOsphere, F-A-Q-O-sphere, which is a combination of two things, collaboration and Google. And it, 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 just Google wouldn't produce, you know, you type in, uh, my Ethernet thing doesn't work, and I have a left-hand monkey wrench for a car, da-da-da, and the answer is right there. Now, that's not because someone has a support desk for you. It's because some other person asked that question once before in history, and someone else answered in a public forum. And Google picks it up because of the long, the long queries are really good uh, in Google. So there's a system there, a human computer system working together, right? And that's Wikipedia too. Believe me, I, I built collaboration technology that's way more complicated than Wikipedia is, and it had way fewer users. It wasn't complicated to use; it was just complicated on the inside. It had a lot more features, blah blah blah. Because I was selling to companies and had to charge them; they wanted to pay me a lot of money. I had to give them a lot of features. This does a lot more impact. 
Because why? Because it actually just gave up on certain things that enterprises insist on. It basically broke the rules. It's sort of the kind of a left-wing socialist thing. It said, you don't need no stinking access control. You don't need no stinking privacy. You know, you don't need a single, single strong, strong sign-in. Okay? Those are all things enterprises have, but they just said later. They think it's better to take what we can get without those things and get the large amount of content than only restrict the world's knowledge to this little bit that has to get through those, those filters. Again, there's different systems. Like I said, in the enterprise world, we don't just give up those ideas, but, I mean, we have a different effect, a different kind of knowledge growth in an enterprise because of those different filters. Okay, so next slide. So if that's the killer app for Web 2.0, um, what, is, what is the source of the power? What is the source of the knowledge? And I, um, the straw man people, I, you know, when so, folks like Tim O'Reilly, who's a very smart man, but not, clearly not a technologist, and he wouldn't claim to be a scientist or anything, but he says collective intelligence is the thing happening here. What is, does he just mean the wisdom of clouds? You know, what, is there such a thing? If you just took a pile of user-contributed content into a giant database and po poked at it, would you get intelligence out? Well, of course not. But there's something going on with the technology that's making harvesting value from that. And I think that's what we're in this room to talk about. Okay, next. So now to get a little bit more concrete, we're in the general space. We're a subclass of technologists, I guess, or something in the field. Is a and somewhere in there, you can see on the left-hand side all the kind of things that technology has been doing to make this web thing happen. And the gray ones are pretty solved. Okay, we can store, we can capture everything from, you know, your sister at her birthday party all the way down to the giant databases of corpus of everything. You can store everything because just drives are practically free and, and the databases are fantastic. You, you can distribute everything because the, the dark, all the fiber in the world was overbuilt and we just got cheap fiber around the world, cheap connectivity, thanks to the laser and some other things. We've got many to many communication nailed because everyone in the world is connected. Cell phone or email, one of the way, or instant message or something. That's done, solved, and it'll continue to evolve. But, I mean, that, there's no longer a bottleneck there. The bottleneck is creating value from the data, okay? Again, the pile of the type, wisdom of clouds is just a myth. There isn't wisdom in clouds, okay? So there, this is where the technology really re meets the road, and what are the levels of that? Well, the early technology had to solve problems of e-commerce and search, and that's what they did pretty well. And then along came Wikipedia and blogs, and all kinds of things like that, where the technology catalyzed human collaboration in a public environment. It made it possible to have no access control, no song identity, and so on, and still get something useful out. Now, that system is actually on the edge of crumbling because of spam, right? But it, is, it, is, it was an amazing feat that it could pull that off. I think the next level, and this is what Markov's calling the 3.0, and that company, Radar Networks, is an ontology company that he's using in that, in that article. I think it's the semantic web, but what's the app? Okay, next slide. I think the killer app is this, collective knowledge system. So this is a combination of the vision of the web and the Internet, of collective knowledge, but doing it as a system, deliberately designed as a synthesis, a man-machine system. Um, and this, this goes back all the way to, uh, you know, Engelbart and those folks, uh, uh, the cybernetician Wiener, Werner, uh, what's his name? They had the same model. And the, the guy got the insight by uh, programming uh, artillery guns to shoot down uh, stuff, missiles. 
And he realized that if he put a human there that was smart and enabled him with an inter- interface, they could do a lot better job than just trying to automate it. But if they didn't automate some of like the trajectory uh, calculations, then the human could do a terrible job. So this whole cybernetics field came out of this insight that there's a man-machine synthesis. And I think that you, if we deliberately design systems that way, so that, and, the, and these, by the way, the gray ones are, the gray bullets here are definitions of knowledge, collective knowledge system that's true of Web 2.0 systems, which is there. They get their power from human contributions. They get it from multiple sources, and they, and they get better as they get bigger. They have network effects. Okay? They're stable in an increasing returns way. That's a key property of these things. The ones that aren't just die away. Okay? Now, if you add these bullets in the middle, this is the semantic web piece of it. If you, if you base it on human con- contributions and you augment that with structured data, then you really get the artillery sh- gun with the artillery person. You get the man-machine synthesis. And if it's, when you're integrating from multiple sources, if you don't just mash them up, but actually think about whether the combinations are meaningful, then you actually get the power of synthesis rather than just throwing your darts at the wall and hoping you get a good answer, okay? The applications of Web 2.0 didn't require the right answer. They just required things like discovery, right? Search, nobody sues Google if the answer's not there or if it's the wrong answer. Its job is just to give you some entertaining answers. That's it, right? But there are other domains where we need something else, where we integrate multiple data sources. We need to know what are the bounds of errors and things propagated by combining things with different assumptions built into them. Okay. And the third, we, we never should forget the property, though, is if we don't build them for he- humans, then we're just going to have the old thing like if they, if they build it, you know, we'll, they'll come and so on, and, and giant data systems that no one uses. But if we make a system that the more people buy into it, the more valuable it is to everyone, that's the, that's the magic key to getting these systems to work. Okay, so next, next slide. So this is the um, Tim Berners-Lee uh, semantic web stack. So I, so I sort of come in out, you know, outer, inner on this. But, the, you know, the bigger world is, I think, the web. And inside that, the bigger killer app is, you know, collective knowledge systems. And I think within that, semantic web is a key technology. And within that, ontology is a pretty key enabler for that. Now, um, you, m- many folks in this room already know that. Some, some know it more than, better than others. But I think I'll go just a little bit into it. The real notion is if, you, if you're a conventional web developer or software developer or business manager of IT, you get that there's notions of stacks. So there's this internet at the bottom, and it goes up, you know, programming languages, applications, and so on. This is like that. It's the same, it is literally the same idea, except the technologies do layer di- differently. And that the bottom layers here are really about the plumbing, about the formats, and so on. And the coupling layer, the interface layer, that allows interoperability at the semantic level is the ontology. That is, it's, it's the way that you can say, in a small amount of space, here's the commitments I'm making about a large space of data. But if you understand this little bit here that I say in a very carefully concentrated way, then any programs you make that are consistent with that understanding will be, deal, will be able to accurately deal with a whole range of data. It's very, very much like a database schema, except it has more semantics. Okay? But because of that, if you get that bit clear, then you can write reasoning engines that can take advantage of that concentrated bit of specification that says exactly what this thing is good for. Okay? And that's what I think ontologies are. So next, next slide. So now some actual results from our, from our thing this week, okay? Having, I mean, this has been fantastic. And having actually 
struggled trying to use these dimensions and so on. And listen to Denise talk, talk about how they're not orthogonal and so on. Um, I was starting to learn some things. And one of them was, it reminded me of an old trade-off in engineering, which is basically power versus cost, or value versus cost. And I think we have one of those here. If you look at the space of ontologies, so click, click number one, they differ basically on the cost to develop them versus how much computational you know, service you can deliver against them. So if you take a terminology or a taxonomy, I know I guess one's a subset of the other, right? So taxonomy is the classification system. I did my homework. Okay, the terminology is like Dublin Core. Okay, but what can you get with that? You, it's, it's nominal data matching. So you can get a data model that says you either are or are not the author of the book. Right? That's, that's the level of it. Okay? So it's not so hard to make that. It's not free, but it's, it's not free because you have to have a small number of these words. Social cost, political cost. But it's, it's reasonably powerful. It gets you that level of Web 1.0 level of storing everything, retrieving everything. Okay? Next level. Data modeling is a little bit more fancy. We keep not talking about them, but they're the big elephant in the room. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of data models. And, of course, the more you put into them, the more you get out. So, for instance, if you put a nice set of constraints into your DDL for a database, it will enforce things for you so you can stop worrying about it. It's a coupling mechanism that basically keeps you from going insane and allows you to manage complexity. Okay? So just think, that's really what ontologies are, too. And we think a long time about a small amount of stuff, and we can just rely on it. The semantics are, you know, we go back and you know, say, well, this one has pedigree all the way to Chris Menzel's brain. As he figures out the semantics of set theory, how's that fly to propositional logic? I don't have to worry about that. I just have to put it in L. That's a technology stack. That makes sense. Okay? The next. Formal ontologies are up there. Now, they have always been uh, the most, they have the best, biggest promise for like a fancy whizzy wing, whizzy, uh, inference, but they're also, you know, unfathomably hard to make unless you have a very specific design objective, right? In other words, they can just go on forever. Psych, for instance. No design objective whatsoever goes on infinitely. That project can ever, will never terminate because it has the goal of doing everything, right? But it also does, has done some wonderful things. It just doesn't have any termination criteria, evaluation criteria. On the other hand, the services that you can imagine, that Doug Lennon can imagine, are infinite, right? So it really is. And here we saw even the, uh, we saw some talks about this, about where the, you know, if it's an upper ontology designed for data integration for geography or ge geospatial data, it's still an upper ontology, but they know when they're winning or not. They know when they've co covered their space. Okay? But so they'll get their, what that does, in fact, is it essentially pushes up on this curve the value per cost. So that's what you always want to be pulling this up. Now, there's one more that just crept in, click, and that is our friend Foxonomy. So they're the new ones to this game. And they're the cheap trick. They're the, they're the low-hanging fruit. And it's been hanging there for a long time. We just never saw it. And it took the web to just say, hey, you know what? There's an awful lot of retired minds out there, semi-retired minds at night, you know, kids at high school, whatever. It's a metaphor. Uh, but, I mean, a lot of spare capacity, computing capacity that can be put to use here. And uh, it, it really is actually amazing how you can bring this up on the curve. So you take a, just, a, just one relational table of a bunch of assertions, and all of a sudden you can tag clouds and, and similarity metrics and monitoring and all kinds of cool stuff. And that's with really, really trivial reasoning. Okay? So next. Now, the other, another interesting thing, and too bad Denise can't see this, because I'm basically saying, I hear what she's saying here, is that if you look at our, our, our dimensions, they happen to correlate this way, too, on the two dimensions. 
That is, formality, structure, expressiveness, and level of granularity all correlate directly with cost, at least in my experience. You know, mesh, mesh is a big honking uh, ontology. It has a lot of work, time and money put into it because it's got a lot of detail, right? Um, something like BFO or uh, Psych or something, it's got a lot of expressiveness in the language and, and fine grain, you know, in spite, formality, and therefore it's going to be expensive to do right. Only certain people can do it, and it'll take a long time. Um, on the other axis, it seems like the dimensions of role of computation seems to sort of be in that same space. If you want serious reasoning, you've got to pay the cost. You get more. If you want just retrieval, it's not so much. Right? And search is even weaker. So there's that kind of dimension. And that seems to correlate directly with computational service. And the other one is also intended use. Multi-use ontologies are, are really hard, just like multi-use uh, software libraries are really hard to design. Usually they're not designed as libraries. Usually they're evolved from applications. And so the same thing here. You build some, starting something that's very narrow in its intended use is, is less cost. But over time, if you build a few of these, then you can accumulate that cost. Okay, so that's really, I think they're all pretty much aspects of the same dimension. Uh, now, one more thing to look at. Click, see what we got underneath here. Oh, here we go. I just wanted to play some of the ontology. You can just click through them, Leo, because they're obvious at this point. I hope I didn't put one above the other or to the right. I know upper right implies what? That it's a marketing slide. It has a graph that goes like this, that's all. Um, but general speaking, things like engineering math and BFO type have more work and can do more work. Took more work to make and can do more work than something like delicious. Per unit of content of knowledge. Okay, so next slide, and this hopefully is a new insight too. That these dimensions also seem to correlate with something else. The nature of the design methodology. So if you look on over here, the low cost design methodologies are social. And the middle ones, like what word are we going to use in Dublin Core, are political. And the ones on the right, like how are we going to model our, our quantities and dimensions, is engineering. Or how we're going to model our whatever, you know, formal stuff. That's engineering, ontology engineering. And that costs more, but you get more for it. The other dimension is this. What's the motivator, really? What's the actual impact of doing the computation? In the case of the low computational services like retrieval, it's just pretty much fun. And if you care a little bit about the results, it's learning. So there's Google, like there's entertainment, like Yahoo, RSS feeds or whatever, you know, there's entertainment kind of web, and then there's learning kind of web, and then there's legal web that says there is an answer, and we need to get the right one. So precision and recall happened to matter a lot in that case. So that, that, that taught me something, too, that maybe our roles, our spectrum here, really speaks to how ontologies are built and how they're used and what value they provide. And that's why there isn't the right answer. It's a trade-off. It's a value cost trade-off, like almost all engineered things. Okay. So one more layer of this. And I'm pushing this one, I know, but this is the last one like this. Okay. What else do we do when we have nodes on a chart? We make it go from the lower left to the upper right. Yeah, got that one done. Um, we, re we work those axes until they're dead. Okay, did that already. The third thing is we've got to draw some arrows between our nodes. Okay, so let's put some arrows on. Click one. What happens if you have a feedback loop from the work you do on taxonomies to the work you do in taxonomies? That's called tag suggestion. And people are doing that now. So if you're typing along in a, a tool, and it goes, it sort of says, like every time you type a character, it kind of says, do you mean this? Or would you like to say that? And we actually use that in real travel, and it, it's great. I mean, it actually helps snap to the grid, we call it, 
to, to a set of terminology that are um, known by some metric to be useful for that domain. We actually made them domain specific, like if this is a place name, you do it one way. If it's an attribute of a travel thing, you do something the other way. And I don't know, uh, Thomas can probably speak to it, but I think that this is starting to happen in Delicious and stuff, too, where they're using some popularity or interestingness metric. Okay. Um, and that will allow us to not just have, if we have that feedback loop going, we can catalyze folks with taxonomies. And we can form, we have certain long, long protein chains that will form when you drop this little catalyst in there, uh, as long as you, you know, put the right one in. The next arrow is what the Tag Ontology, Tag Commons group is trying to do, which is say, you know, we can actually get some data interoperability leverage if we just formalize our ontologies of tags and get our act together. So if we place this in, the, in like in Menzel's type of ontology, then we'll have to get all the power of all the semantic web tools and so on. In particular, we have this thing that goes from like a, like a low-level tag thing all the way through this thing, Girdle. Someone mentioned Girdle, G-R Debra, which is this translation from uh, like RDF and things like that into XML, which in this case is used for like microformats extraction. So you, have, so you might have some low-level thing that has that tags in a microformat. And then the Girdle machinery pulls it up and puts it in an RDF. And the RDF goes into OWL and what have you, you know, the whole stack. And now then you, have, you may have a Sparkle endpoint somewhere. I'm starting to learn this soup now. And uh, it's amazing how now we can start acting like it's technology. Okay. The next link is one of our favorites. And I think this is the most exciting actual, like, sell the semantic web today, killer apps, is these data interoperability things. I mentioned the geoscience ones earlier, and we've heard some of the, the medical and also uh, environmental, right? These are, these are domains where the scientists have gotten their act together and said, we need this thing, and we're going to use it. We don't care about whether it's formal or not. We just want to get the job done. Um, and that's, we're going to put some more fuel on that fire, I think, in the next year. And the final flag is this one. Yeah, we can probably learn from those left-wing commie folks on me people, too. Because it turns out that, as someone said, as great, Thomas is in the speech, so it's a great idea. You know, there's medical terminology that you use, the docs use, and then there's stuff people use when they talk about how they feel. I mean, you could always augment with, with corporate data, usage data. And folksonomy is a fantastic source of data for this stuff, for our research. So I think these confluences are going to, in fact, drive the Web 3.0 apps and the Web 2 apps together. We're going to, we're going to bootstrap our Web 3 apps off the 2.0 apps, and we're going to really have a accelerated semantic web effort because of that. And I think I'm going to close with that slide you saw earlier. One more click. Yeah, which is this one. But I'm going to give it a new meaning. So the last time I was talking about, do we want to play well together in the sandbox, right? But now I'm actually saying, do we want Jackson Pollock in terms of the technologies, the microformats, the 15,000 XML, you know, thingies that people have invented? Or do we want to go on the one on the right? which is have not one, not two, but a nice coordinated set that they don't necessarily look like, um, you know, a pointless painting, but they, at least they look like art and they give some value. So thanks very much. Yeah. Sure. Let's have any reactions, questions within that. Yes. Hi, Catherine Goodyear. Um, you saw a progress toward a Web 3.0. I'd like to propose that another aspect of Web 3.0 would be this notion of attribution. Mm -hmm. In Web 2.0, we had non-attributed content. Yes. 
pretty much. In Web 3.0, I would like to see us have attributed content. And what I see happening, and I see it happening even with Web 2.0 applications that are put behind firewalls in companies and in governments, mm -hmm. is you get very rich interactions in comparison. Exact same app that you'd have out in the, the world in, in a Wikipedia-type format, but now because it's attributed, mm -hmm. the content doesn't degrade. I think I, I can agree with that. That's a fantastic point. In fact, as an example of that, this is another a good throwaway example of uh, how Semantic Web could really work for the Web 2.0, which is if you think about actually trying to get tag data or Wikipedia entries, it could be the same thing, you know, from all these different sources. Not, not work, it won't work with Wikipedia entries. Anyway, tag data or some other kind of thing that has a user identified with it. The thing is you have a different account in all these different systems, right? And now FOF, or whatever son of FOF, whatever it turns out to be, there's, there's an identity uh, data problem that people are trying to solve. And if the semantic web people and the web people, and they are working together, get their act together on that, you could have sophisticated reasoning about who you are on the web so that you can do attribution. Another piece of this is interesting. Why do we bother with microformats? which talk about, you know, like, which are embedded in HTML. Oh, it's not RDF, our no man's space. Well, there's a good reason. For instance, let's say I have a videotape or a song, okay, and it comes from 15 different publishers, and they have their own thing. But the, the format we agree to is a microformat for putting a V card, actually they call it an H card, an H card of the author as the way of saying the author's name, and um, using Dublin Core as a way of saying what the metadata of the object is, and so on. Then we have a translator from that into ontologies and from that into the machinery of reasoning so that we can actually say who wrote the song. Is it the same person as that? And, and you cannot do that with Web 2.0 technologies. You cannot do it with tag string matching. You need to have some interesting reasoning to do that. So good. thank you for bringing that up. That's a good point. Any other comments? Peter. Uh, maybe sticking a fly in the ointment a little bit, but I'm, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I don't have any tomatoes today, though. Um, I don't buy a lot of this semantic web machine human interaction stuff on the basis that, oh, and you use the example of Google. Somebody types in a really long query. There's no logic behind that. Someone just happens to have written exactly that chain of characters at the other end. So it's, a, you know, from an epistemological point of view, it's, it's, a, it's a human to human interaction with the, the computer happens to be in the middle. There's no, there's no computing. There's no magic behind that. But turning it around a bit, and I, um, I was thinking a bit about, and Bob was there last week at this Oasis Symposium, and there was a guy there who did a presentation talking about the, the next wave of knowledge management. And he talked about it in terms of we've gone from transformational work where we get machines to do the heavy stuff and taking coal out the ground and making steel and stuff um, we're in we've just come to the end of the phase of the sort of transactional work where we've got business processes that automate everything we're doing but we've yet to move into the real the next technology wave is really going to be about handling the tacit knowledge the tacit workers how do we manage to capture something more than we're doing today I mean there's lots of and, I mean, folksonomies do this very well, but what you're doing, it, it's like a sort of, it's just a sort of process which is capturing something that you're doing manually and doing it a little bit more efficiently, like anything from bookmarks to more sophisticated things. The next way is only going to happen when the technology and the 
the, the mindset, I think, changes to realizing that when I save a bookmark, it's not just the URL I want. I want the context. What was I working on at the time? What was the, what was the environment I was looking for, for, for something about? Who was I on the phone with or on the chat line with at the time? That gives me the full context back. And it's when we, we move from that mindset of doing just purely transactional processing into that uh, management and shaping of tacit knowledge and tacit working, that's going to be... That's going to be the trigger point as far as I'm concerned. I don't think we're there yet. I think it's great. And again, I, I didn't plant him, but that is what my company introspect did for seven years. Um, here's an example of how it, it works to combine collaboration technologies with structured technologies. When you do that, you, when you send that email to the client, it knows you're working on that client. When you interact with that service provider through the firewall, you, it knows you're on the project with them. It knows what the product you're working on is. It knows what stage this is in. In other words, you can take a structured business process model of what's happening in a business, and you can inherit it down onto the unstructured data that's being generated by the knowledge workers in that business. And once they know that's happening, the feedback loop is they can search on it. So now they can get really highly precise queries of their semi-structured or unstructured content based on accurate descriptions of their business process. And, and I think you're right. That is going to be the way these things work. You're going to be able to, in the office environment, there was a big ARPA project about that a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and search, absolutely. Context, it's context-sensitive search. And, and it's, it's sensitive, it's task identification. There's a bunch of things that they funded, actually, ARPA, to do this. And uh, SRI came up with some, some cool ideas about this. Not only what you're doing, but who you're talking to every day. And I think about how spam filtering is going to work. It's going to work. By, like, we're just talking about this in the hall. You know, I get an email from someone, this gentleman here is going to send me an email. I said, please put in the email that you go into this conference. Our, our systems are going to tell us that in the future. You both went to the sun conference. This guy's okay. You take his email, right? And, and there's really, there's no reason just except for execution. That stuff's happening. Um, but I believe you're right. I believe that's going to be a turning point. Because once people get, it's that feedback to the user. Once the users saw introspect that actually gave them way more search precision and recall than they could ever get, from just random keyword search, then they all bought into it. That was the key thing. And, and even like sales guys who hate computers were starting to buy. And, and if it works for them, it works for uh, everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Zhang Junli from Purdue. Uh, I have a question regarding the, uh, the slides of collaborative knowledge systems. So I, I guess you, you, you propose that there will be a deliberately designed ontology layer which can interpret or leverage the uh, people contributions. In that case, my question is, so because there is usually a, a gap between the general the language which general population used and the semantics where the, the people who design the ontology. So in that case, if you project this uh, system into a web environment, so who are going to maintain that ontology? Right. And how to maintain that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because it gets to the, co uh, the core of why uh, ontologies in general are not uh, terribly adopted for uh, information organization. They have to force it upstream. You have to really force people you know, with a whip to just use the control vocabulary to tag their stuff according to that thing, um, whereas folksonomies took off real easy. The, the, meta, the, the proposal of what a knowledge, collective knowledge system is, 
says that the role of technology is to augment the unstructured semi-structured data with a backbone of structured data. So one example is I'm proposing right now that we do this thing with uh, geo place names in the world so that when someone writes a wiki page, they get to, in a very easy way say where they're, where they're, what they're talking about. Are they talking about a place? And the same thing for time. Are they talking about a time? Just say it. And make it really easy to be accurate about that because places and times we can be accurate about. Without even, we don't have to have a GPS system to do this. And, and then from now on, you can do like nearby search and all these other good things that are based on that. See, that's the model. If we ask, ask him to say, well, give us the right category for your document when you submit it to the knowledge management system, it, it usually always fails. Right, you see, see the difference? Yeah. Any questions on the phone while we're uh, people popping on and off there? Yes, this one, believe, from Cecil Lynch. Peter, can you hear me in the room? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, my, I guess my comment on this confluences uh, slide is that there should probably be a, a third dimension that goes into the page when you start looking at the feedback loop. Specifically, when you look at the formal ontologies providing the semantic interoperability to the data model, because that process is actually quite difficult, um, because there there really isn't um, a functional uh, ontological services bus essentially that allows us to tap into um, all of these formal ontologies and then feed that back into very well-organized, robust, complex data models. And so, I, so I, I would say that that's probably not as difficult when we look at the feedback to uh, suggesting tags to folksonomy. So has there been any um, thought about uh, kind of categorizing in that third dimension to uh, start tackling some of those problems more in a in a um, essentially a hierarchical way of uh, complexity and providing some of those pieces. Now I know some of this work has been, you know, it is part of the National Center for Biomedical Ontologies to start looking at some of these frameworks, but I really haven't seen anything come out of that yet. Are there any comments about that? Well, I'll make a quick comment. I think I like the idea of putting a third dimension. I would think of it as a spiral coming out where actually it's not today's data models that are strongly influenced. It's tomorrow's. So as they evolve, we're going to see, you know, like we used to have design for manufacturability was a big push, right? So at design time, you think about the manufacturing maintenance costs. You can now talk about design of data models for design for interoperability. And the ontology and formal ontology thing can be a way of guiding that. You know, is this semantically consistent with this common ontology for our organization? Or is it inconsistent? If it is, why? You'll make it. And then there's also mediating technology to bridge it. But pretty much, I think it will just evolve with data models as, as new ones are created. That's, that's today. Um, but, you know, someone has to be doing the engineering, software engineering methodology for design for interoperability. It's a, it's a tough problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look at it from the perspective of complex uh, medical data models that exist today, like the HL7 version 3 standard. And really what you would want, I, I would think, is some way to provide inference across multiple 
uh, formal ontologies to provide some uh, semantic interoperability to very highly structured uh, data models like that one at multiple levels. And it gets very complex. And, you know, we're working on some of these things at the Centers for Disease Control now, and it's not, it is not as, as simple as the slide looks, I guess is what I'm saying. I would talk to talk to Deborah McGinnis because we were talking about she's got a lot of this in her head about the various pieces of research going on. I know I just know of a few I've heard lately, right? Is that fair enough to give them your name? Uh, because there are there are spots of research where the, professors have come up with these like query dispatchers or, or data integration thingies that can reason about the data models and, and look for the assumptions and how they differ. So, Deborah, will you be in Budapest? Will I be at what? Uh, the protege conference by any chance? Uh, no, but I'll be at Semtech, AAAI, and others. We can correspond through email if you want. Great, thanks. I know that some of you, I'm sure, have planes to catch or places to go, but I did want to just take a moment to uh, certainly on behalf of NIST, uh, give you my tremendous appreciation for the time you all spent here. I think we have uh, really done something, which is nice. It's always satisfying. I think I speak for Peter as well on behalf of the Ontolog Forum that uh, I found this uh, just very intellectually stimulating and I think satisfying. Of course, we didn't solve the world, but I think we have made a contribution which will last uh, it will certainly last online, thanks to the Ontolog Forum, and uh, so for that, I'm personally very grateful. I just really uh, enjoyed this, and again, I really respect the, the time and energy and the perspectives that you all brought to this. So um, with that, I know that the for those of you who are sticking around, the bar opens in two and a half hours at the Holiday Inn, and uh, I'll be there. For those of you who are taking off, I wish you the best, and I'm hoping that we can all stay in, in good touch and this is just uh, another step in our ongoing dialogues and discussions. So thank you very much again, and hope to see you all real soon. Thank you. And I'd like to uh, express thanks to you, Steve, for hosting this.